Dear friends of Jesus Christ, I wonder what was going on in Peter's mind when he said, I'm going fishing. Fishing. There's nothing wrong with fishing, of course. It's a good thing to do when you're in the mood for losing money and wasting time. It's hard to describe how amazing it is to sit out on a cold lake in the early morning, untangling fishing line. And then there's that feeling you get when you feel a tug on your line. Oh, it's a big one, you say to yourself. This one's a real fighter. But when the catch comes close to the boat, you realize that all you've caught is a 10-pound pile of seaweed. Let's go fishing. Fishing was more than just a hobby for Peter and the other disciples. They were raised on the Sea of Galilee, also known as the Sea of Tiberias. Their fathers were fishermen before them, and so they became fishermen too. Fishing was how they put food on the table. It was their job. At least it was their job before Jesus called them to leave their nets behind. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will make you fishers of men. For three years, the disciples put their fishing careers on hold in order to follow Jesus. And, and what a memorable three years it was. They had front row seats to authoritative teaching and, and dramatic displays of power. They drank the water that Jesus had transformed into wine. They gathered up the leftovers of fish and bread that Jesus fed the 5,000 with. They were on the boat when Jesus lifted his hand and lifted his voice and calmed the wind and the waves with his word. What a wild journey, certainly more exciting than untangling fishing line at 4 a.m. in the morning. But all good things come to an end, I guess. What are we supposed to do now? That I imagine the disciples asking each other. Jesus, he's... He's different now. He just appears, then he disappears. We know he's alive, that's for sure. He even breathed on us the last time we were together, said he was giving us his spirit, said he was sending us out just as the Father had sent him out. But where are we supposed to go? And what are we supposed to do when we get to wherever it is we're supposed to go? There was a disconnect you see, in their, in their mind. Perhaps you experience this disconnect too. It's one thing to believe in the resurrection, to be able to say, he is risen, he is risen indeed, and it's another thing to know what that means, how it changes things. I can just imagine Peter staring out over the Sea of Galilee, scratching his head. I think I'll go fishing. We'll come too, the other disciples say. Scholar Edwin Hoskins thinks that this fishing excursion is an act of apostasy. He thinks that by returning to the very nets Jesus called them to leave behind, the disciples are forsaking their Lord. But I don't think this fishing trip is an act of apostasy. The disciples aren't turning their backs on Jesus. They just don't know what to make of this new reality. They're aimless. They're restless. Without direction. And can you blame them? The resurrected Jesus is, he's kind of confusing. 
He's elusive and kind of underwhelming. You'd think that he'd make a dramatic curtain call or something, that he'd waltz back into the assembly of the religious leaders and say, remember me, I'm back. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead of knocking on Caesar's door, he quietly reveals himself to a small group of women. And instead of doing an interview with the Jerusalem Times, Jesus burns a day on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his downcast friend. Jesus used to minister with such focus and and passion. He used to do cool things like, like heal lepers. But the resurrected Jesus is more relaxed. As his disciples go fishing, he makes a beach fire and he roasts some fish. Which makes me wonder, where did Jesus get his fish? Did he go fishing that morning too? Perhaps you feel some of the ambivalence the restless, uh, and the restlessness today that the disciples must have felt. I mean, today you're going to go home for lunch and it won't take long for the Easter high to fade. You'll notice the dandelions taking over your backyard and you're, you'll wonder what you're supposed to do with them. Or you'll see your neighbor walking her dog and you know that she doesn't believe in the resurrection and yet... Her life doesn't really seem that different from yours. And then you'll think, what am I supposed to do now? Maybe I'll watch a movie. Or maybe I'll check my work email, see if anything interesting has come in over the long weekend. We know that Jesus has been raised, but we don't always know what it now means for us, how it's supposed to impact our life are living. Now, while I sometimes wish that the resurrected Jesus were a little more showy in his post-resurrection life, I've also come to appreciate the wisdom of Jesus' subtle, non-anxious approach. The levels of communication and revelation in this passage are simply amazing. Jesus says very little, but his presence makes a huge impact. The disciples have been fishing all night, John tells us, but they haven't caught anything, which isn't really a surprise, as that is what usually happens when you go fishing. (laughs) Haven't you any fish? Asks, Asks a stranger on the shore. No, the disciples grumble back. Well, throw your net on the other side of the boat. There's fish over there. I'm not sure what's more surprising in this scene, the the fact that Jesus gives fishing advice to his aimless disciples, or the fact that his disciples actually decide to put this stranger's word into practice. Surely they had already tried the other side of the boat. But for whatever reason, the disciples obey. And the moment they do, a giant school of fish swims right into their nets. The catch was so big, says John, that, says John, that the disciples didn't have the muscle power to haul it in. Once stabilized in their boats, the disciples turned their gaze back towards the shore. Who exactly is this stranger on the beach? The beloved disciple is the first to testify. It is the Lord. At this, Peter quickly puts his clothes on and then he jumps into the water and begins swimming towards the shore. I always find this a little funny. 
I wonder why he puts his clothes on before he jumps into the water. Isn't it easier to swim without clothes? I guess maybe Peter, maybe he wants to look presentable to Jesus. Or maybe this is simply another sign that Peter's head is not totally in the game. Gasping for air but fully clothed, Jesus stumbles onto shore. Speechless, he drips before Jesus. Moments later, the other disciples anchor their boats and join Peter on the beach. We've caught 153, they say. Come and have breakfast, says Jesus. Bring a few of your fish for the fire. None of the disciples dared to ask who this stranger was because they knew it was the Lord. But the way that John puts it, you sort of wonder, maybe they have some of these questions, but they don't dare ask because they knew. What is going on here? What is Jesus doing with this beach fire and this meal of fish and bread? I think the most obvious thing that Jesus is doing here is serving. Notice that Jesus doesn't scold his disciples for returning to their nets. Rather, he meets them in their confusion. He knows what it is they need. He knows that what they need is not a good scolding, but a good breakfast and the relational work that happens at table. Comfort food for the tired fishermen, grilled pickerel and toasted biscuits. We know that Jesus liked a good meal, but I think he's doing more in this passage than just serving food. As he shows hospitality, he's also tending to the relationship and to the souls of his disciples. Specifically, he has his eye on Peter. Peter has leadership skills, you see, when he says, I'm going fishing, all the other disciples say, we'll go too. But as a leader, Peter has also failed pretty spectacularly. During Jesus' trial, Peter denied Jesus three times. The beach meal is the context within Jesus will minister his grace to Peter and restore Peter to the apostolic office. Do you love me? Asked Jesus to Peter in the next scene. Yes, I love you. Says, Jesus, says Peter. Feed my lambs, says Jesus. Simon Peter, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Tend to my sheep, says Jesus. Three times Jesus asked this question, and three times Peter says, yes, I love you. Then Jesus says, now follow me. Get out of the boat once more and follow me. As this scene unfolds, we start to see the wisdom in what Jesus is doing. In a non-judgmental way, in fact, in a restorative way, Jesus is recommissioning Peter and the other disciples. He's regathering his scattered team for breakfast, and he's reminding them at that breakfast of their original call to follow him and to be fishers of people. And this is where the layers of communication in this passage really begin to pop, I think. In a way, this simple scene becomes almost a parable for for the disciples' mission in the world. Aimless and confused, the disciples decide to to go out fishing on their own, but, but they get skunked. All toil, no fish. 
This is what Jesus said would happen to them if they tried to do life apart from him. Earlier in the Gospel of John, Jesus said, I am the vine and and you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, no fruit, no fish. But if you abide in me and and you listen for my words, if if my word abides in you, then you will bear much fruit. So when Jesus shows up and says, throw your nets on the other side of the boat and the disciples obey, we see what life in relationship with Christ does. It bears fruit. So Jesus is wearing many hats in this scene, and though he speaks very little, he is showing quite a lot. He's the servant leader, he's the servant, sorry, who graciously offers hospitality to the discouraged. He's the servant leader who recommissions his aimless disciples in a non-shame-inducing way. But he's also the servant leader teacher who gives his disciples a tangible reminder that ministry is only fruitful when pursued in union with him. Surely this is the Lord. And he still works this way because he's alive and not dead. Of course, you probably won't find the resurrected Jesus grilling pickerel on a beach anywhere anytime soon. But if your senses are attuned, you may just notice him attending to you, showing hospitality to you, recommissioning you. As I was writing this sermon, I was reminded of Anne Lamont's story. It's creatively articulated in her brutally honest but excellent book, Tender Mercy, or Traveling Mercies. Before Anne was called ashore by Jesus, she led a very selfish, carefree life. She wrote books, she smoked pot, she hung out with her progressive friends in her progressive little California, kind of California coastal community. She wanted nothing to do with God and considered religion to be quite ridiculous. But then she, uh, on her way home from the market, would stop by this church um, and she would listen to the singing outside. And she'd start to do that more and more and every now and then she'd go into the sanctuary to listen to the songs. She always left before the sermon, which she thought was stupid in her words. And then one night, after a slew of bad decisions and some serious emotional pain, Anne Lamott experienced the presence of Jesus in her room. She experienced Jesus so acutely that she actually turned on the lights. Of course, no one was there, um, but I like how Lamott describes the experience. I knew beyond any doubt that it was Jesus. I felt him as surely as I feel my dog lying nearby as I write this, and I was appalled I thought about my life and my brilliant, hilarious, progressive friends. I thought about what everyone would think of me if I became a Christian. And it seemed an utterly impossible thing that simply could not be allowed to happen. And so I turned to the wall and said out loud, I would rather die. The next morning, Anne Lamott woke up and the experience of Christ's presence continued to haunt her. Jesus kept following her around like a stray cat looking for a home. I kept pushing him away, Anne said, because I knew what would happen. You let a cat in one time, give it a little milk, and then it stays forever. 
A week later, she found herself at church again. This time, she stayed for the sermon, which she also reflected was also quite stupid. But the song following the sermon was so raw and honest that she broke down and cried. And on the way home, she felt the presence of Jesus following her again. But instead of putting up a wall and pushing Christ out, Lamont began to open herself up to him. She lingered at the doorway of her house for a while, and after a minute or two of, two of silence, she said, All right already, I quit. You can come in. Jesus was tending to his relationship with Anne Lamott, welcoming her to shore, feeding her breakfast, recommissioning her as an author, giving her a mission in life bigger than serving herself. It is the Lord. Domino's Pizza founder Tom Monahan has a similar story. As a youth, he tried to go to seminary to become a Catholic priest, but he was kicked out of seminary. On a whim, he dropped out of college and, and bought a fledgling pizza place in Ypsilanti, Michigan. For decades, Monahan struggled to make Domino's successful, but finally in the 80s, his hard work paid off, and, and for a while, Domino's Pizza was the fastest growing food chain in history. And as the chain grew, Monahan's wallet grew with it. He liked Frank Lloyd Wright architecture, and so he began collecting Wright's work, um, houses and furniture. He once purchased an oak table for $1.6 million. In addition to this, Monahan had Bentleys in his garage and a yacht in the harbor. He liked baseball too, so he decided to purchase the Detroit Tar Tigers in 1982, and he owned them for about a decade. Monahan went all in on the, the materialistic life of, of just buying the best that money could buy. But then he started to read C.S. Lewis, and as he read Lewis's reflection on pride and mere Christianity, he received what he came to understand as just the voice of Christ in his life, calling to him again gently calling him to come to shore. And overnight, Monaghan came to realize that he was a lost soul in need of a new commission. Slowly, he started to sell off everything that he had collected, the tigers, the oak table, and finally he sold Domino's Pizza for about a billion dollars. Now his life and wealth are directed heavenward, and he's quite militant about it, actually. He's kind of an interesting fellow. But he says this, he says, my goal is heaven, and I want to take as many people there as I can. And so he's built churches in Central America. He started a Catholic university in Florida, and he's given away more than half of his net worth to charity. I came into this world penniless, he said. I know that I cannot take any of it with me, so it has long been my desire to use the material resources that I have been blessed with to help others in the most meaningful ways possible. It is the Lord, brothers and sisters, continues to invite men and women to leave their old life behind, to come to shore, to receive a new commission, 
in the ministry of his kingdom. And it's such a big mission. It includes the restoration of all things. But at the heart of it is also the call to minister to people, to be fishers of people. And he invites us all to join in this journey. In fact, not only does he invite us, but he often pursues us in the places of discouragement, our aimlessness and restlessness. And he calls out, catch any fish? Come and have breakfast. Now follow me. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you're feeling a little aimless, not quite sure what this resurrection business means for you. It's a tough place to be. But today, I honestly believe that the resurrected Jesus is calling you to shore. He has no intention of shaming you, no intention of judging you for your past life, just this gracious invitation to breakfast and a new commission of serving him in the world. He does this kind of thing. He invites us to join him in this ministry of of bearing witness to the resurrection in the way we live. He does this kind of thing because he's alive and Lord of the church. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, you came to your disciples on the morning of their discouragement when they were feeling not only aimless and directionless, but also just like failures for not having caught any fish. And there you made a breakfast for them, called them to shore, and in a non-shame-inducing way, simply ministered your grace as you recommissioned them for ministry in the world. And Lord, here you have gathered us. And we know that even today the call is out there. Come and have breakfast. And I pray, Lord, for just your continued work in the world, your pursual of men and women, And I pray too, Lord, that you teach us how we can be involved in showing hospitality and uh, inviting people to, to a new way of living. And may your kingdom expand in the world and may the first fruits of your kingdom that is found in your resurrected body, Lord Jesus, expand to take over the whole earth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'd like to invite the choir back up and the worship team. We'll sing to a song together called Come to Us, Beloved Stranger. And you may stand.
As I mentioned during the baptism liturgy, Christ's promise to his church, to his disciples, is that as we go to make disciples, to participate in Christ's kingdom work in the world, that as we go, we can trust that Christ goes with us. Surely I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Go with that promise ringing in your hearts and minds today. And go in the power of God's blessing. May God go before you to lead you, behind you to protect you. May God go beneath you to support you, and beside you to befriend you. Do not be afraid. May the blessing of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be upon you. Do not be afraid. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. And all God's people said, Amen.